everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker at Goldman Sachs. So before we get started today, I just wanted to ask a quick favor of you and that if you are enjoying the show, I would greatly appreciate if you could take two seconds to leave a rating and review. And in return, I promise you that this podcast will never, ever have ads that you'll have to skip through. Now, today's episode is a really special one in that Justin Kahn, the founder of both Twitch and Atrium, sits down with us to discuss what structures lead to a happy and meaningful life. Specifically, as we go through our lives finding success and oftentimes even more failure, we quickly realize that it's the journey and not the end goal that makes all of this so rewarding. So Justin and I ask ourselves the question, what are the things we can do in our daily lives to find more joy, presence, and gratitude as we build a top-performing work culture and take care of ourselves through the bustle of a busy work week? Now, Justin is a well-known mentor here in the Valley, having helped build Twitch prior to its sale to Amazon for a billion dollars, in addition to working as a partner at Y Combinator and now founding Atrium, which is bringing transparency and automation to the legal industry. So in today's podcast, Justin and I start with a discussion on Justin's reflections on building Twitch and then shift into a discussion around culture. Specifically, we chat through some of our favorite books like The 15 Commitments to Conscious Leadership and The Untethered Soul and how their principles underlie the safe and conscious culture at Atrium. And lastly, we dive into happiness and human connection at a more personal level and the tactics, mental models, and structures that Justin uses to support a fulfilling and meaningful life. So why don't we get started? Hey, Justin, how's it going? Hey, how are you, John? Doing great. Thanks for taking some time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me over here. So why don't we start with a bit on your background as you've had quite the tenure here in Silicon Valley? Sure. So I've been an internet entrepreneur and investor my entire career. I started off in 2005. I was an undergrad at Yale and I had this startup company with one of my best friends from growing up. He also was at Yale and it was called Kiko. It was online calendar, kind of like Google calendar. Uh, as in like the Outlook style. Uh, so you could drag and drop appointments and see your calendar on a weekly view. And uh, we decided to start that company in undergrad as seniors because we felt that then was a good time to start a company. We had pretty low opportunity costs. And so we figured, let's just uh, go and build something, see what happens. We didn't really know anything about startups at the time. They weren't very popular for undergrads. And luckily, we were able to get into the very first batch of Y Combinator companies. So YC was an idea that Paul Graham had at the time of batching all of his angel investments and uh, you know helping them help each other. So we had found out about YC. I think our company definitely would have died had we not heard about YC, but they were running the summer program and we decided we would apply at the last minute. It was like the night before one of our friends sent us the email from Paul that he had emailed out kind of to various computer science departments around the country. And we applied to YC. We ended up getting up there for an interview. Uh, it was a long, you know, kind of 40 minute interview process at the time and up getting in and that was kind of the start. That company did not work out. We're not very focused, did not talk to our customers. We didn't use calendars very much ourselves, but I only had a class two days a week, so I could remember that. And the rest of the time I mostly spent in unscheduled activities is the way I'd put it, <laughs> AKA playing World of Warcraft and uh, drinking a lot of beer 
And so we weren't power users of calendars, didn't really know what customers wanted. We ended up building something that did not really, really resonate in the market. And so in a Hail Mary, desperate Hail Mary, we ended up selling that company in an eBay auction, which is very exciting at the time, not a very sustainable business model. And because of that experience, we sold it for $258,000. And it was kind of like almost we'd gotten paid in one lump sum the amount for a year's worth of salary as like a programmer somewhere. And so before that auction, like, you know, you're into the company, we're like, oh my God, nothing's working. What are we going to do? Let's just go get other jobs. We decided, oh, that wasn't that bad. We learned a lot. Let's start another company. And the next company that we started was called Justin TV. And this was back in 2006, you know, only a year out of undergrad. So it was before social media, but we said, let's create our own live video stream of our lives or this hat cam around 24 seven, had to do a lot of technical stuff to make it work in order to get flash streaming to work. And there's a bunch of, I can go into the technical details. If you're curious, there was, you know, no LTE or even 3G internet. So there's a lot of complex streaming work that we had to do on the engineering side, but eventually got this live stream from a hat cam. And then we moved to San Francisco and launched our own reality show. Needless to say, watching four engineers sit around programming all day is not great TV, but we luckily kind of made a splash in the market. Well, I should, there wasn't a market. It made a big splash in the news. Yeah, it was entirely nascent. Yeah. You guys were the first, more or less, but yeah. Because people were curious. They were like, why would this guy do this? And so they came, they saw us programming mostly, or just, you know, sitting around our apartment in San Francisco. They were like, this show is boring, but I want to create my own live show of something, right? Um, I have a bike race I do or a podcast or whatever. I want to create my own live show. How are you doing the streaming? So the light bulb kind of went off and we decided, hey, let's let's build our own live streaming platform, kind of like YouTube for live. If we were smarter, we would have thought of that as step A because, well, YouTube had already been created and then sold for like $1.6 billion. So it was kind of a no-brainer. But uh, we weren't that smart, so we decided we kind of did backwards and eventually we pivoted Justin TV into a live streaming platform. Uh, we raised some money for it, grew it, grew it, eventually raised about $7.2 million for the company. Grew it to be a pretty big website. I think it was a top 250 site in the US. And then we ended up, it flattened out, growth flattened out, and we decided to pivot it, but we couldn't really decide on what. So we incubated a few projects internally. One of them was this company called Social Cam, which was a video app, kind of like Instagram for videos. Now, fast forward a couple of years, it's like 2011. And the other was a company called Twitch, right? One idea called Twitch, which was a, a really my co-founder, Emmett, deserves 100% of the credit because he was a user of our site, but the only content he liked was the video gaming content. So he said, let's invest in this. I think the rest of us were kind of confused or some level of confused, but we decided to incubate it. And then it kind of grew and grew and grew. And a couple of years later, you know, we sold the company to Amazon. So that's like the snapshot. And then I was uh, a partner at Y Combinator investing in startups for a couple of years, uh, funded all sorts of great startups at YC. And then I guess the big thing from YC was I, I realized that as a startup founder, I'd never felt like I had any skills because you're always drowning, right? You're either succeeding and then you ha are forced to do things you've never done before. Like maybe you build this website and now you got to sell the product. So you got to do sales and you suck at sales. As soon as you figure out sales, you got to start hiring salespeople. So you've never hired salespeople. So you, you suck at hiring. You know, you're always forced thrust into like greater and greater things that you've never done before. So you always feel like you're drowning or you're actually failing and you're actually, you know, <laughs> you, you do suck. But you're growing. But you're, you're growing. growing. Either way, you're growing. 
But for the first time at YC, I realized I took a step back and I said, hey, I am good at something, which is early stage startup stuff. You know, what are the things you need to do as an early stage startup founder? And then after YC, well, a couple of years of that, I said, hey, I don't feel like I'm learning anymore. So can I take a step back and think about what I really want to do? And I had always felt that starting companies was had forced me to learn and forced me to grow. And so I said, I'll go back to start another company and end up starting Atrium. And the quick, you know, high level on Atrium is Atrium is a basically a high tech law firm for startups. So Atrium's goal is to demystify the legal experience for startups. We want to make legal fast, transparent, and price predictable. And it kind of came out of my experience as an involuntary power user of corporate legal services throughout Twitch and other companies. I had spent millions of dollars on legal, and there were a lot of things I liked. I loved having an expert advisor who was, you know, really knew their stuff, and they had been in the trenches with founders, advising founders before, and they could apply their direct expert knowledge to my situation. But then there was a lot of stuff around it, around the project management, the pricing, the billing, that I felt was you know, confusing why the industry existed the way it was, it did. And so we decided to focus on fixing that part of the industry. And that's what we've done so far. The company itself has raised about $75 million from Andreessen, General Catalyst, and about 90 other investors, you know, venture funds and seed funds here in Silicon Valley, and have a great roster of clients, high growth startups, primarily here in the Bay Area. Uh, some venture back companies really between, you know, series seed, like really early stage. And then we have, you know, companies that are raised hundreds of millions of dollars and are, you know, real companies. And so, you know, that's a career encapsulated in 10 minutes. That's fantastic. And we'll take your career segment by segment throughout the episode. So why don't we start with Justin TV and Twitch? Because I first remember getting exposed to Justin TV way back in the days of Call of Duty streams, right? <laughs> and that was one of the first times where I think people had started streaming video games, which at the time was a crazy idea, right? I mean, esports was definitely not a thing. And I would get teased by my friends for playing video games, let alone watching someone else play them across the internet. And I remember the pivot to Twitch, and that was right around the time I was playing League of Legends and on my grind to Diamond. But at some point, you found success. And there was a point where Twitch really started being part of the zeitgeist. So what were some of your lessons learned in growing Twitch to be omnipresent in the market? Well, I think the first lesson is that if you expect some sort of overnight viral success, that is setting yourself up for disappointment. Because actually Twitch was, I would say, a pretty slow growth company. It was like a slow, fast growth company in a way. So we started working on the idea in 2010, like end of 2010, right after StarCraft II had come out. There was a lot of YouTube content around StarCraft, and StarCraft was kind of the first game that was really popular on Twitch. It was Justin TV at the time, right? And so then there were Call of Duty streams and some like other streams, but it was primarily like the StarCraft community that was the first community we went after. And so then really people started hearing about it, and I think it really got into the more of the zeitgeist. People were probably watching it in college. Like in 2014 was when like Twitch Plays Pokemon like came out, and then a lot of people started hearing about it. And so they were like, where did this come from? It was like overnight. But even if you discount the years that we spent on working on Justin TV, which is from 2006 to 2010, or really mid-2011, there's still like four years of like working on Twitch before it was like an overnight success, right? That's very true, yeah. And so people don't really think about that. And they just see the headlines, right? Like what's in the news. They only see the highlight reel. Right. 
And so I think it's really important to set your expectations in a realistic way, right? Because I think in society today, I'm sure we'll get into talking about this later, uh, it's so easy to just see the headlines and compare yourself, not even to somebody else's reality, but somebody else's headline reality, which always looks good. It's like the headlines of my life might be, I started a company in college, sold it on eBay, started another company, eventually that became a billion dollar company, was a partner at this venture firm, and then raised, you know, for his new company, $75 million. And that would encapsulate 15 years and all these wins, but none of the struggle or the patience that it had to take to get those, those few moments of blips of, you know, a headline. The second thing I would tell people is that, you know, my second advice, I guess, is that really talking to our customers with Twitch was one of the primary things that changed between Justin V and Twitch. With Twitch, Emmett really started off in a good way by saying, hey, okay, now we're focusing on gaming. Let's go talk to the people who are creating gaming content and figure out what do they want and really consider them our primary customer. How do we give them what they want? turns out, you know, like a lot of other media influencers or people who are trying to create a media, some sort of media content, they wanted more fame or love, right, from their audience to grow their audience, and they wanted to be able to make a living doing it. And so really focusing on product features in Twitch that delivered that for the broadcasters and also other things that we could deliver for the broadcasters, like a sense of community or we had, you know, we built this network development team that would go out and like really be with the community at events and stuff like that. Those were super valuable things that we could do in the beginning. And we only really understood that because of the conversation channel that Emmett created with those content creators. Got it. Those are both really helpful. And I, I definitely think we'll dive into this later, but just around normalizing around happiness and achievements and understanding all the resilience and failure that goes into a single success. So then with that, as our founders think about building a consumer internet business similar to Twitch, what were some of the key KPIs or metrics that you tracked to gauge the health of the business? Yeah, so uh, Emmett, once again, I really spent all my time credit claiming Emmett's uh, <laughs> accomplishments, but one, one of the things that I think he was really smart on was at Justin TV days, we often thought like our broadcasters are our customers or our viewers are our customers. So we'd actually measure viewers as our primary KPI and then some other things like revenue dollars, stuff like that, advertising dollars. But then with Twitch, Emmett was like, okay, broadcaster, unique broadcasters, seven-day rolling average because people stream more on the weekends and different times of the week. But seven-day rolling average of unique broadcasters are primary KPI. And then there's like broadcaster hours and stuff like that. And then on the viewer side, he was pretty smart because he was like, we want people who are engaged. So he really highlighted chatting, which was one of our engagement metrics as a primary KPI. So I do really think those KPIs matter because it was just a mindset shift for us from like viewers, which is kind of the natural audience. It's like the largest audience to broadcasters. And the theory behind that was that people come to a crappy site of the contents there, right? If you make a viewing experience that's maybe 75%, they'll still go view it because they want the content. The content is the primary driver for viewers. So you really have to attract the content creators and then the viewers will follow. Yeah, that makes me think of Alibaba where I had always thought of the company as a B2C, like an eBay or an Amazon. And then I remember hearing Jack Ma say, no, we are a B2B to C company where we focus wholly on the supply side right, on the content creator, on the SMB, and empowering them to differentiate and be successful on our platform. So then last question on Twitch here is, in reflecting on your sale to Amazon, what were some lessons learned? Well, I think the first thing is that deals always fall through and like you can never predict. So I think a lot of people get caught up in the idea of selling their company 
saw a very, you know, smart banker told me once companies are bought, not sold, right? Yeah. You probably heard that. I think that you as a seller have very little control over what happens, which really is actually a metaphor probably for every human being in their lives. And people get wound up, I know I have, about like, oh, this outcome is going to happen. You get you start visualizing what it's going to look like for you, how it's going to maybe it'll meaningfully impact your security, your finances. And so people get very emotionally invested in it. And that's tough because it's a process you don't control. So, I mean, that's probably one like major insight or learning. I mean, the real thing is like, if you want to build a company that's worth a billion dollars or a hundred million dollars or $10 million or more, even you really need to focus on building something that is good for some set of customers that they really love and the rest will follow from that. I think many people, I have friends who get caught up. They've been very successful actually. So I can't necessarily say that this is like a you know, zero way to live or a bad way to live. But like, I've had friends who have caught up in saying, oh, I want to build something. And this is like a great market to get into. And then they build something focused on the market and the buyers. Some of them have been unsuccessful. Some of them have been successful. But I think the most surefire way to build something of lasting value that you're proud of, that you like showing up to work at and is worth money to other people is to build something where, you know, you feel like you're providing value, deep value to some set of customers. Yeah. And that resonates a ton with me where I think about prioritizing the customer first and then the business success, the sale, the outcome is a secondary indirect consequence of Exactly. And I success. feel like a lot of people cargo cult the secondary thing and they want to hear stories about like, how do you sell your company? But to me, that's almost like reinforcing the wrong message, you know? Then thinking tactically though about the sale process, given I would say for every one deal that goes through, at least five of them die. So as you think about a sale to a larger strategic, do you have any sort of tactical tips for founders who are going through a sale process right now? There's a lot. I wrote them actually out on this blog called The Founder's Guide to Selling Your Company. I think you find it on the Atrium blog. I'll post a link to it in the show notes. I would come up with a number as a exec team or founders or board or whatever. And then I would isolate the sale process and the negotiation around that number to like one person. So don't like get everyone wrapped up. And then I would take that person and like they should have that number and they should just not, if anything underneath it, they should just discard or like say it's, it doesn't work. You know, I respect the offer or whatever. And then, you know, not get distracted because I think it's very easy to sell yourself on a different number after the fact because you get so caught up in the sale process. The other thing, you know, obviously getting as many buyers and options to the table as possible is, is very important. You know, mental preparedness for it to fall through, I think, is very important. Yeah, those are probably some of the main things. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, M&A boils down to that truism you said earlier around companies being bought and not sold. I mean, having seen the deal process from both the investor and the banker side, it's pretty clear to me that none of the outsized outcomes come out of a fire sale, right? And instead, if you're focusing on satisfying your customer and building the best product possible, I think successful M&A exits just come as an indirect benefit of that process. Yeah. So then shifting towards Atrium, what I've enjoyed about your journey is the first time around you took a big market risk. And then this time around, you're taking more of what I would call an execution-based risk where you have an established market and it's really about being the best possible version of yourself. So could you share some more about the rationale for starting Atrium and then any lessons learned from your Twitch days that you're applying on the job now? Sure. So the first thing is that I guess now that I have skills in the network, I decided when I was thinking about what I should do, I should focus on a company that was more execution risk rather than market risk. 
I think when you have no skills, you want to focus on market risk. I mean, if I could compare, you know, the Justin of today versus the Justin of 15 years ago, 15 years ago, I didn't have any skills. And today I have like, you know, a lot of capital and resources here in Silicon Valley, et cetera. And if we worked on something like Twitch, the Justin of 15 years ago, or I guess it was 10 years ago, is like actually on an equal playing field with the Justin of today, because capital and skills and resources are not the barrier to discovering product market fit with something like Twitch. Really like customer insight is. And actually I probably have less today than I did as a younger person because I'm less in the culture. I know what's popular less. You know, I'm maybe I have like routines that are set up that are around specific things that I like to do in my life. And so I'm less open to new things. You know, I try to not be, but that might be the case. And so, you know, when you're a younger founder, you want to just go for these things that have high market risk because that's a playing field you can win at. When you're an experienced founder, I think it shifts and you want to go for things where you can leverage the things that you actually have now. And some of those things are, you know, capital, resources, and often in, you know, B2B or enterprise, that's something where, you know, you're really making something that already exists 10 times better. And with legal, we've, you know, it's an industry that, exists and really everyone in the business world has to pay for legal at some point or another and they all find it wanting in some way or another and there's some clear ideas for how you could make it 10 times better maybe they'll work maybe not but it's just an execution against those ideas so i felt like this was an area where today i have more opportunity to you know leverage my resources and that's why i really chose this idea in terms of mistakes it's interesting because I don't know if I was actively holding lessons learned at the end of starting these first startups, but I definitely have been doing things differently in a bunch of ways with this company. Probably the most important outside of, you know, kind of this idea how it's got set up and starting with like something where there's less market risk. The most important really to me is that I'm really focusing on building a company culture that I care about, that I want to show up to work at every day. In the past, I was always desperately striving, I would say, for some outcome or some milestone, right? Like, okay, we just need to get the traffic up so that we can raise another round so that we'll be good for another year. Or we just need to sell the company so all the daily stresses, I can get them off my plate. You know, there's always some thing in the future that if I can just get this thing in the future, I'll finally be happy then. And I never really stopped to think, like, what kind of company do I, Justin, want to show up to work at every day? So this company, luckily, I've been able to take a step back and think that, ask myself that question. And the answer is very simple. It's a conscious company. And a conscious company to me is one where people take radical responsibility for what's going on around them. They're open and, and curious in every situation, and they're able to bring their whole emotional selves to work. And to me, that was a company where if we reinforce those values, I would feel at home, I would level up, I would feel like I was working somewhere great and enabling other people to work somewhere great. And that's almost the most important thing to me, actually, in this company. That's wonderful, and I love how much intention you've put behind that. But I think what a lot of founders struggle with, and almost every company that I know struggles with, is it's one thing to put, let's say, the 15 commitments to conscious leadership on a wall, right? And on day one, say, these are our values, but it's another thing to live those every single day. So how do you intentionally tie in those values into the company itself, the process, the environment on a daily basis? How do you reinforce that? That's a great question. So this book, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, is a great guide, and I kind of read it 
maybe a little under a year ago and realized this was the type of company I wanted to build. But how do you roll it out? So we're doing a lot. The first thing is I think that people model the behavior of the leaders. So I think of myself as the chief example officer, right? I want to be the model of the behaviors that I want other people to model. So for me, that means exhibiting, taking radical responsibility and talking about it. It means exhibiting being curious. Like when something bad happens or that normally people would perceive of as bad, I want to say, hey, I'm approaching this with curiosity and what can I learn from this? And I want to talk about it so other people can see that I'm doing that. It also coincidentally helps me be a lot happier with what's going on in my life. You know, last week I got some negative feedback, right? And normally I would have been very reactive to that in, in a past life, but I, I said, you know, was able to say, hey, how can I, this is a gift. This feedback is a gift. It's something I can learn from. And I, if I approach it from curiosity, let me ask myself, what are the things I can learn from this? And I find that curiosity, if I model it, you know, other people will also follow that behavior. Another one is being in touch with your emotions. So obviously it's a lot easier for me to talk about my emotions at work as a CEO than someone else who's at the company. And I know that, right? So if I say, hey, guys, you got to talk about your emotions at work if you have them, people may or may not follow that, right? Me just saying it. Because I haven't yet created, invested in creating a safe space for people to say it. So for me, that means, hey, let's, like, let me show examples of how if I'm in a meeting and I'm frustrated, I can take a step back and say, hey, guys, I just want to say I'm frustrated right now. And it's not about you. It's not you're doing something wrong. I think I'm frustrated because we haven't gone back to see if these goals are appropriate anymore for this project. And, you know, it's been a couple months and I should have done that. I haven't clarified that. So, you know, you can start talking about using your feelings as a way to talk about maybe some of the underlying issues that are happening at the company. And if I model that behavior enough and I clearly accept other people and encourage other people also having that behavior, being able to name and, and talk about their emotions, then I will have moved the needle towards creating a safer space for people, everyone to do so. Right. But that's my responsibility as a leader. So that's one thing, being the example. Right. Other things. We have a manager training that involves conscious leadership along with other skills that we think are very important. That's happening over the summer. It's a 14-hour mandatory manager training. It's a lot of time, but we take it very seriously. We brought in Diana Chapman from the Conscious Leadership Group into the company to do a training. We're going to do more all-day trainings for various members of our team. I'm leading a Conscious Leadership Book Club based on the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. We have another one session tomorrow, actually. And so that's something I love talking about. That's another way that we're encouraging at the company. We bought everyone a copy of the 15 Commitments to Conscious Leadership. I have flashcards in every conference room and issued to every team member that have our values, but then also have emotions. So you can kind of, it's like emotional reference card, which I know sounds, oftentimes people see it and they're like, what is this kindergarten? But I have found it personally very helpful to be able to help me identify, even just for myself, what emotions am I feeling? The thing is that whether or not you admit it, every person is feeling emotions much of the time, if not most of the time, because that's who we are as human beings. We have hormones and like an amygdala that fires and creates all sorts of emotional responses. And emotions aren't good or bad, right? They're, they just are. And they're a characteristic of being human. And even though we like to suppress the idea that we have emotions at work, we do because we have interpersonal dynamics and relationships with other people at work. And those relationships can result in situations that give us joy or frustration or sadness or anxiety. And if we suppress it and we don't talk about it, then the underlying issues will never get cleared, which actually may be very, you know, and these emotions may be very important data to identify things that are very important for a business, actually. 
for example, if I'm frustrated in a meeting that we're going over a plan, maybe that's a signal that I don't agree with this plan. I might be wrong. Maybe it's just a signal I don't have enough data to agree, but it's important for me to like understand that so I can drive at the underlying issue instead of saying, oh, I'm frustrated to myself, right? Like I'm not talking about it to anyone and just saying that's the way it is and going home and never addressing the underlying issue. Yeah, I think that's really important where in the workplace of old, whenever our emotions boiled to the surface or our egos were getting the better of us, we had a tendency to suppress that, right? And instead, in a conscious workplace, we're here to recognize that those are signals that our body or our soul or our self are sending us. And we should recognize those, right? Not suppress them and listen to them and incorporate them into our holistic selves. So I'm glad you touched on a few structured ways that you support conscious leadership and a safe workplace. And I'd love to dive more into that because I think about culture within the problem of scalability, which is really tough to do just given how culture is so intentional. So let's say Justin goes on a two-year meditation retreat, right? So you can no longer set an example for your team. So what are some other structured ways that you support your culture? And maybe that's also a good segue into the KPIs and metrics you use to actually measure that culture change. That's a great question also. So I think about Atrium as a lasting organization. I mean, that's my goal is to build a lasting organization. And the culture is a very important cornerstone of that and might be the like foundational stone. And so to me, it has to extend beyond me. You know, one example would be a negative example would be like, for a long time, I personally would get up and say in all hands, hey, I want feedback. And people would still report Atrium is a low feedback environment. And I would say, oh, how is that possible if I, the CEO, am saying I want feedback? But the fact is, like, the company is not the CEO. So if you want a culture to permeate throughout the company, it must permeate not just from me, but also from other people. So there's a few things that we're doing. One is it's the responsibility of the executive team members to spread conscious leadership also, right? So that's one really important thing. A second thing is that I think when I designed our human resources department at Atrium, I didn't call it that. This is from the very beginning. We felt that management was very important and helping up-level our managers was very important. I think in Silicon Valley, it's often overlooked. Like, how do you give people and help build management skills? Obviously, there have been a few very high-level leaders who have, who have championed that, you know, like the Andy Groves of the world. But for the most part, I think my experience in startups that I've either run or seen, management training and skills is like very weak. So here I wanted to do something different. And so we created management operations, which runs everything from you know HR facilities, but also most importantly, like management coaching and training. That's like kind of the elevated, most important thing that they do. And so conscious leadership is really important for our management operations team. And they are effectively the coaches and business partners to the leaders in the organization to help them bring conscious leadership to their groups and teams. Now, this is something that's very new. You know, Atrium itself is a very new organization. We're only two years old. But that being said, you know, this is an investment that we're making and the one that I think will help conscious leadership be part of the culture beyond what I do myself. That's wonderful. And then any sort of KPIs or metrics that you measure? Yeah, so the specific KPIs for that is a great question too. I like how you always bring it back to the KPIs, <laughs> but for us, there are we do an employee engagement surveys. You can look at a bunch of tools out there. We use Lattice. It's a lot of employee engagement surveys, but we, then we look at employee engagement surveys and how they move over time, right? The different questions. And we look at them specifically for the specific departments, though each HRBP, right? HR business partner 
is responsible for different orgs, you know, partnering with the managers in the, that org. So we look for actually, like for, you know, management operations, team member basis, like who are they partnered with and is, are those team members improving, right? Yeah. Based on their team's engagement surveys. So there is like some accountability in that as well. And thinking about all the skeptics out there who think culture is just a bunch of hocus pocus, do you have any tangible examples that showcase how conscious leadership or investing in culture actually leads to better business results? Sure. I mean, I think Asana is a great model. Asana is a company that's embraced conscious leadership and I think has built a great product and a great team. And if you look at their glass door, people love working there. And so to me, that would be one model. Yeah. And the team at Asana is crushing it, for lack of a better term. So let's talk about challenges then. What are some of the most difficult aspects of creating a successful workplace? Well, I think for a startup, I think really drawing back, this is going to help us be successful. It's very easy in a startup for people to be to focus on short-term results and say, hey, we don't have the time to invest in long-term things because we just got to get enough revenue that we can raise another round so we can survive to the next year today, right? Yeah. It's always easy to put prioritize the short-term. And so I think there is a decision that you have to make as a leader to say, hey, I'm not going to compromise on this and I'm going to invest in this for the long-term because I believe that's the right thing to do. And so that part is an inherent challenge, I think, because you know it, it's hard to like invest in some of the softer stuff. Personally, in my experience, I've seen immediate results from an execution perspective when my team has embraced conscious leadership. So to me, it is like not just a long-term investment, it's actually quite a short-term investment as well. I think that's one. Another is that conscious leadership is not for everybody. There's gonna be some set of people who do not want to live in the commitments of conscious leadership. And if you allow those people to continue to work at your company, then they will make the culture diffuse. And the fact is you may have to have make hard choices about who is right for the organization based on the culture. And you know, to be honest, every culture makes those choices. So if you're a company that's, let's say, more of a investment banking culture, I'm not gonna name any specific, you know, call out anyone specific, but, you know, and it's more of a fear-based culture, there's certain people who are not gonna be right for that organization. And honestly, they're gonna trit. And you probably saw that in your time at investment banking. There's some people who just like show up three months later, they're gone, because they're like, I don't wanna do it. And so that's another thing. It's, it's the culture's not gonna be right for everyone. A third thing I think is that sometimes, in my experience, people have confused a conscious company with a lack of accountability. Or it's like you can't have aggressive goals. But actually, I think the reality of it is those things are orthogonal. It's like whether you're able to bring your whole self to work, you're 100% responsible for what's going on around you, you're open and curious, that's one axis. There's another axis that's like, are you setting aggressive goals or not? And they're completely orthogonal. Oftentimes, people may confuse, you know, say, hey, how can we be a conscious company when we have these really aggressive goals and tight timelines? Yeah, there's for some reason this idea that a conscious culture is one where a bunch of yogis go to work every day and don't get anything done which is really the opposite of reality when you have a culture where people are genuinely excited to show up and be their very best, right? So let's talk about hiring within that context. So in raising $75 million in venture capital and hiring really quickly, how would you tease out in a short interview whether or not someone's aligned with the values of conscious leadership? That's a good question, and I think that's very hard to do. I like to understand people's core values I actually don't like doing short interviews because I think a short interview is window dressing. It's like, oh, okay, like not the CEO, whatever. If I'm doing a sales pitch, then it can be a shorter interview, but that's not me learning anything about the candidate. If I want to actually judge a candidate and evaluate a candidate, what I need want to do is a top grading interview, which is, there's this book called Who, kind of goes through it. 
but the idea is really going through this person's life in every stage and understanding their core motivators and who they are. That's what I really wanna do. And then I wanna say, are these things aligned with the types of values that I care about here at Atrium? Yeah, and it takes a ton of time to get to know someone that intimately. Yeah, I mean, it's expensive and, you know, hopefully there's pre-filters, right? Of course. You can't do that with everyone, yeah. So then all of this talk around culture and conscious leadership, I think all at the end of the day boils down to finding meaning and fulfillment in our daily lives. And I've really appreciated that you've been more vocal and use your platform to create a broader dialogue around how you've been able to find more fulfillment in your day-to-day. So would love to shift towards the more personal side of things here. So for example, the feeling good principles that you put together, which I'd love for you to talk more about and I'll post a link to in the show notes. Sure, that'd be great. So in the past year, really starting about a year and a half ago, I embarked on this journey to, I guess, understand myself better. And really didn't start intentionally like that. What happened was, you know, with Atrium, we're growing it pretty successful on the business metric side, but very stressful, just like any startup. And I had felt that something was, you know, had to change for me. It was so stressful. I was like, something has to change. And I was surprised it was stressful this time because, you know, I kind of thought objectively, like I've been successful before. Maybe this time, you know, I've learned something off different skills. And also like, it's less material to my like basic needs or security or future if Atrium is a unicorn or not, right? Yeah. So I was surprised, but the body and mind can create stress and attachment to anything. And so I was attached to being a unicorn, having an outcome, whatever. And so to deal with that, I started trying to understand, like, how can I deal with this stress? And I started doing a bunch of different practices, experimenting with a bunch uh, for myself. And I would say I'm a beginner at all of these things. I think in Silicon Valley and on Twitter, People want to hold me up as, you know, oh, this guy thinks he's super wise or he's a guru or whatever. But really, to me, social media and talking about the things I'm doing, the practices I'm implementing in my own life is just a way to learn, right? I say, if you want to be something, make it part of your identity. If you want to learn something, teach it. That's the way that I learn. And so I like to share the things in real time as I'm learning them. And that's what I've been doing on Twitter, on social media with a lot of this more personal fulfillment stuff. So, I mean, very simply, the practices that really worked for me, that I found really moved me, were, uh, you know, keeping gratitude journal, making gratitude part of my life. So every day I started with uh, writing out my gratitude journal, use this app called Five Minute Journal. It's great by this company, Intelligent Change. It's an amazing app, it's very simple. I started meditating, meditate every day for 40 minutes doing transcendental meditation, but I think that there's many different types of meditation that work for different people. So being consistent about that has enabled me to be more present and also to be more okay with whatever's going on, like even moments of discomfort or pain, being able to be present in those moments and not having to flinch back and run away from them has been very meaningful to me. I quit drinking alcohol about 98 days ago. I was using that as an escape mechanism from things that were, you know, from stress or from negative emotions. And so I felt that that was a really big step for me, something I've been doing, you know, I've been drinking since I'm in high school, you know, a long time. And I exercise every day, just even if it's just five, 10 minutes, you know, something simple, you know, just trying to do a headstand or the hundred pushups or 10 minutes on the rowing machine. I try to do something every day. You know, I find that keeps me grounded in my body and very, you know, physically present in my life. Those are some of the major things. I eventually compiled them all in a document because I was talking about it with my friends a lot. 
and I compiled it in, in a Google Doc that I shared, which is this Justin's Guide to Feeling Good. And then eventually I put it on my blog. I had to share it out more broadly. And, and it seems to resonate with people. I think in our society today, there's not enough emphasis. I think it's starting to turn and you know I see more and more people interested, but there's not enough emphasis in how are you going to be fulfilled in the introvert world, right? Inside your own mind. Everyone's looking to the extrovert world, the you know, the outside, what are you doing? What experiences are you having? Who do you know? How much money are you making? What job you have? All that people expect to create fulfillment for them, but it never does. It never does for very long anyways. And so I think that that is changing about our culture and it makes me very hopeful. Yeah, I think there's definitely an attachment to as soon as I sell my company for X or as soon as I get into Y, I'll be happy. And there's a very quick realization a couple of days later that you've already normalized that base level of happiness again. Mm-hmm. So I actually kind of want to tick through all these different feeling good structures because I've been fortunate enough to practice those in my own life. So yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's a blessing. Such a blessing, like such a blessing. So with gratitude journals, I think my therapist a couple of years ago recommended John just every day in the day on your mirror, actually with an expo, write the three things you're grateful for. And, you know, writing it down in an actual journal is great too, because it's permanent. But what I love about that practice for me is because then I start the next day erasing those and reminding myself again, structurally, what was so great about the next day, right? I like that. Sometimes it's really broad, right? Like sometimes I'm grateful for the earth or sometimes it's more specific. I'm grateful for my mom's sacrifice or love, right? Yeah. So highly recommend gratitude journals. It's brought me an immense amount of joy. I would imagine the same for you. Absolutely. The next thing I want to talk about though is meditation. And you mentioned Transcendental Meditation TM, which I'll add show notes for because I sing its praises as well. But I think a lot of people really struggle with keeping a consistent practice of meditation. Yeah. And I've gotten to the point now where I don't know how to do a day without it, but there was this long period. I mean, two years where I was on, I was off. So then for you, what are some ways that you've been able to keep consistency in that practice? That's a great, great question. So I'm a fairly low willpower person and people like laugh when they hear that and they're surprised or they don't believe me, but it's actually the truth. So I read this book. I was actually doing most of these things before I read the book, but there's this book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. It's a great book. And it goes through like, how do you form habits? And there's a bunch of things that are basically true of every human mind. And you can use these psychological tricks to force yourself to create new habits, right? So for example, one that works really well for me is the streak psychology, right? So like having a streak and then tracking your streak in something, whether it's on a calendar and an app or whatever, and then just not breaking the streak. Like 98 days without alcohol. Exactly. I can name, you know, I've done 98 days without alcohol. I've worked out every day for the last 80 days. You know, I've eaten the ketogenic diet 21 days in a row. I'm pretty bad at keeping that one, that streak alive, <laughs> as you can see. But um, that streak psychology, and I've meditated every day for the last 185 days with Insight Timer, right? So those are some of the things that keep me accountable. Another thing is, that's why I like talking about this stuff publicly, because it's because people have you want social pr- pressure, proof, right? Yeah. If I say, hey, I'm going to quit drinking, and then next thing you know, people are, you know, I'm back at the well then people are gonna say, hey, that guy's a hypocrite. And I am somebody who historically has always tried to source approval from other people in the world. And so I don't wanna be thought of as a hypocrite. I know that's my like reaction, that's my instinct. And so, you know, it helps keep me accountable. So, you know, there's a lot of different things you can do depending on how your brain works and how psychology works for you, but those are some of the things that work really well for me. 
Yeah, I really love the social accountability piece, especially being lucky enough to have loved ones or friends who can be part of that journey with you and you're all making yourself better. Absolutely. So then you just mentioned something that's a good segue, which is, you know, we're looking for other people's approval. Yeah. Right. I think we're all guilty of that. And that to me is defined by our ego and makes me want to bring up a book I know we both really enjoy, which is The Untethered Soul. Yeah. So I don't know, why don't you give a little summary of the book itself, what it means to you? Maybe I'll say the same and then we can kind of dive into that area of fulfillment and listening to your ego, observing your ego, but understanding that you're not defined by it. Yeah, The Untethered Soul was really interesting because it was kind of like the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership for my life. I felt that the message that I walked away with, the primary message that was really helpful to me was to realize that I am not my thoughts, I'm not my emotions, I'm not my experiences. Those are just things that are happening and I am really the observer, the conscious observer of those things. It's almost like they give a metaphor in the book, Michael Singer writes this metaphor that's, you know, like you're watching a movie, except instead of just audio and video, it also has, you know, the other senses, smell, taste, and touch, right, feeling. And then it also has emotions and thoughts. And that's what's happening. And so, Whereas before I would get caught up in all of these like experiences, like F like, oh, I'm having this feeling of anxiety. And it's like, that's me. It's like realizing, no, I'm just like the guy watching the movie and anxiety burst in the movie. And I don't have to identify as that anxiety. I can just notice it and then it passes. Yeah. And so that was a, a huge switch for me, a huge shift. And uh, that's why the book was very, very powerful to me. It also kind of, kind of defines, I mean, really the book is kind of reintroducing a lot of Buddhist concepts back into the West, or not back into, but into the West, Western world or modern society. The idea of attachment and the way that our attachments drive us crazy and make us suffer was resonated very truly to me because I've always been somebody who has been attached to things in their life, you know, big outcomes, getting more, never been satisfied. And so that understanding of like, hey, that is gonna create pain for you was really big for me. You know, it sounds very simple as I laid out like that, but it was really big for me to understand and internalize that and be able to say, hey, I can, you know, whatever happens, whatever the universe delivers is perfect. Yeah, I mean, even when you say it sounds really simple, but it was really big, I feel like that's what happens for all of us where there's a huge gap between knowing something to be true and really feeling it in your core to be true. Yeah. So we can dive into how exactly you bridge that gap because there are a lot of different ways, you know, through meditation, through therapy, whether that's psychedelic enhanced or not. But one thing that I think is also still important to note about this work of recognizing your anxiety and your thoughts is not to shun it or suppress it, right? So when I remember thinking first about being more conscious about my feelings and my emotions was I would push it away. And one of the guides and mentors in my life who I deeply respect specifically said, don't shun it, thank it because it's always gonna be a part of us. And to some degree, that need for accomplishment, that chip on your shoulder, that feeling of never being satisfied is what got me here today and what got Absolutely. you here today, right? And that makes me think a lot about ego. And the other thing that I'll share, specifically, the ego to me was framed as the beta dog in the wolf pack. And up until that point, I had never thought about the ego and I being separate, or these thoughts, the need to be loved, the need to be respected and revered as anything other than me as well. But realizing from this metaphor that was given to me that the ego is part of you as part of your pack, but it's the beta dog and this whole time until now, it's been forced to play alpha. And now it's time for me, like the observer, 
to step up and say, hey, it's okay. I've got it from here. I appreciate it. I'll listen to you, but I am alpha. I am here to lead the pack. Yeah. So that was a really powerful metaphor that really helped it click for me. That's so. it. Yeah, that's super interesting. I like that one. I think that if you want to find peace or if I want to find peace, it's really being able to realize that all these things are not good or bad. You know, your drive to success, there's like things that have served you and things that no longer serve you. You know, my um, anxiety, there's ways that that served me. There's ways that that doesn't serve me. And just recognizing that they just exist, you know, emotions, feelings, thoughts, all of that just exist is very freeing. And you can accept that and find joy in every moment. It's incredibly freeing, though exceptionally difficult to practice on a day-to-day. So we'll see how we all do there. But Justin, I wish we had hours more here to dive deeper into some of my favorite topics. But for now, we'll have to end for the sake of time on one last question, which centers around the title of the podcast, which is pattern recognition. I'm curious, what are some of the consistent patterns or themes you see across successful consumer internet businesses and then also B2B businesses? A successful pattern of consumer internet companies, I think really having a product leader who deeply understands the customer, I think that's very critically important. And then- That was Emmett, right? Yeah. 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 I wouldn't, it wasn't me. Yeah. Thank you, Emmett. I'm grateful every day for my friendship with Emmett. It's been uh, 30 years we've been friends and- yeah, he's an amazing friend, always been there for me. Obviously, it's changed my life, you know, to know him. It's been an incredible gift. Successful pattern for B2B companies, I also think it's to have someone, you know, founder or otherwise, who deeply understands the customer. Yeah. I mean, this is a consistent theme through all of what we've spoken about is just knowing your customer, right? And prioritizing the customer and everything else will fall in line. Absolutely. And outcome, exit, business success, culture right? It all comes down to customer. Exactly. Thank you so much. That was a great pattern. Appreciate you taking the time. Awesome. Once again, a big thank you to Justin for joining us today. If you're looking for a transparent and seamless legal experience for your startup, I highly recommend you check out Atrium. In the meantime, I have tweeted out our upcoming guest list for our female founder series on Twitter, which includes Sophia Amoruso from Nasty Gal and Girlboss, as well as Leah Busk from TaskRabbit. So I'd absolutely love if you could send in your questions and I will look forward to giving you a shout out during those interviews. You can tweet at me at John Heasy. That's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.